Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. Mike's going to preach. You guys thought you were getting away with a short Mother's Day sermon today, huh? Can you guys pay attention while the baskets are being passed, or do I just need to fill time right now with jokes or stories? Jokes. I don't know any jokes. <laughs> All right. So we've been, uh, in our time here at First Presbyterian Church, we've been uh, talking about how we're going to be following Jesus, following Jesus into love, into worship, into, I'm not going to try to name them all, but service. We're, we're ending our time here talking about following Jesus into mission. We're taking all these great things we've learned about, love, worship, service, gifts, all these great things, and it's moving us toward mission because in the end, this stuff that we're holding on to and praying about and singing about is supposed to go out, and we're talking about following Jesus now into mission. And it's kind of a fun month because it's the, the month of May is broken up. You know, it started with Serve Visalia. Uh, we went out with other churches and did some, some fun stuff. And, um, and Ruben made that video, by the way, one of our own. I thought that was real awesome. So just wanted to... I got to brag on Ruben. So all the churches are watching that this morning. And so we're following Jesus into mission. And my hope this morning, more than anything, is to stir possibility in our hearts of what could be, what a life could look like following Jesus on mission. I want to share some stories. Um, I want to ask some questions that will get us thinking about what what could be possible here as a church on mission. And as I was reading um, some of these stories, I was so struck with uh, knowing that we have a great heritage of being on mission as Christians. We have a great heritage, a great cloud of witnesses behind us that have gone forth in boldness and proclaimed the gospel. Um, and I was so stirred by that, and I, I felt like the, you know, the baton's passed to us, the torch has been passed to us, and now it's our time here while we are alive on earth to, to carry that, that torch. Um, so I wanted to start with the beginning, kind of the first uh, disciples that went out. Christianity had a really good chance to fizzle out right after Jesus ascended into heaven. There were uh, a small group of people, of followers of Jesus. They were convinced of his resurrection, waiting in an upper room for uh, the promised Holy Spirit. And his parting words to them, I'm sure, will still ring fresh in their ears. I wanted to read those out of uh, the first chapter of Acts. Starting in verse 6, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, Lord, is it over now? Is it done? Is the kingdom finally here? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. At this point, they might have been a little confused about what, when this Holy Spirit was supposed to show up. Uh, but instead of just relegating their encounter with the... Res- Remember, Jesus has been resurrected. He's already died and he's risen again. He, and instead of relegating their encounter with him to just a hallucination or something uh, that they were making up and just going back to their normal lives, they waited and believed. About 120 followers, so a group maybe a little bit smaller than our group here, were the only people on earth holding the words of Jesus in their heart, waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit to go out. A small group of people. I, I just can imagine the emotions that were churning in that room, fear, anxiety, probably a little bit of excitement, not really sure what's uh, going to go on. And I'm, I'm convinced that that his parting words to them, that they would be his witnesses to the end of the earth, seemed like a very tall order for 120 people. I mean, just imagine if it was us in here and God had said, you're it. You're going to be my witnesses to the end of the earth. So they're faced with this tall order and uh, they have their first church service. It was a bit strange. They're interrupted by what sounds like rushing wind. People talking in unlearned languages, praising God, acting like they're drunk. Peter gets up to try to put a sermon to this mess. And 3,000 people are cut to the heart. 3,000 people are cut to the heart in an instant and turn to God. And God takes their numbers from 120 to 3,000 in one morning. Um, So from this point on, we read in Acts about these little Jesuses, as they were called, or Christians. Christians was a pretty derogatory term at the time. Um that they were going out risking humiliation. They were risking ridicule from their friends. They were risking death um, to carry this message of Jesus to the end of the earth. Most of our New Testament is written by the hands of eventual martyrs. They knew this Jesus stuff that they were talking about, it was serious business. It wasn't a weekend activity for them. It wasn't a pastime. It was serious stuff. And they knew they were carrying it uh, to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus had told them, so that as many people as possible might drink that living water that they, had, that they had experienced in Jesus. God consistently gathers his people and then scatters his people. Gathers his people, scatters his people. He can use whatever he likes, persecution. He can use exile. He can use hardships to scatter us. There's a purpose to gathering. I love gathering. But gathering in and of itself isn't the point. He gathers us in order to, in order to scatter us. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, are you huddling up somewhere safe, just like these disciples were huddling up somewhere safe? Just imagine if they had decided, no, 120 is all right. Let's just, let's just church it up right here, 120 people. This is enough. Can you imagine we, uh, if they had just gone to their graves with this message of Jesus in their hearts? Are we hiding in safe places when we're supposed to be scattered? Are, there, are we hiding? I don't know what those safe places are for you. It could be friends or family or a job or Visalia. Are, we, are you hiding in, in a safe place longer than you should be? Like I said, there's a point to gathering. I love gathering. But the, the, the reason that we gather together is so that we might go out. Together, yes, we can go out together. I, I, would, I love doing mission with community, from a place of community. I, I want to do it with my friends, absolutely. But we can just become ingrown if we just stay here together and don't go out as Jesus had uh, 
commanded them. And we, as Christians, as people, we have a great heritage of mission. We are a people that go when God speaks. We're a people that go when God speaks. So fast forward a couple of hundred of years now. Um, the church is still finding its footing in the Roman Empire that's expanding. Uh, and it's expanding even to Egypt, where, um, you know, it's the former place of slavery for God's people, an exile. It's expanding to Egypt. And this is kind of my Mother's Day plug for the, the, the Sunday. Um, Christian women in Egypt. Get this. This is just a couple centuries into, you know, Christianity spreading. Christian women walk up and down the streets in Egypt, gathering babies that had been thrown out, discarded. That was a part of the culture. If you didn't want it, you toss it out. The Christian women in that city would walk up and down the streets, gathering these babies who were unwanted, and they would nurse these babies back to life themselves. Oftentimes, they'd sit under statues of the pagan gods of that time, nursing these babies back to life and caring for them as their own. Just... What a picture of God's mercy in public display as they sit there. A quiet act of reviving these babies back to life just screams what your God's failed to do in caring caring for and valuing life. Our God does victoriously. And a a, a theologian, Ray Bakke, really credits this urban nursery, as he called it, to the spread of Christianity in Egypt. He said that's the reason why Christianity took hold in Egypt, because these women went out and took, went to the, uh, a place that was just being ignored, children, and nursed these babies back to life of themselves. So I'm asking the question, are there unwanted children now in our city? Are there unwanted children today? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank God they're not being tossed to the, into the streets, but there are unwanted children. And I know many of us in here, I know personally that a lot of you are, uh, some of you are volunteering to be advocates of children in the court system. Some of you are opening your homes right now to be a refuge for kids in the foster system. What if that little act that you think might be insignificant is the spark that causes the gospel to go forth in our city? What if? Just like uh, I'm reminded of what it says in Psalm 68. Uh, It says, sing to the Lord. Sing praise to his name. This is a worship song. Extol him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord and rejoice before him. A father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing. What if your quiet act of fathering the fatherless or mothering the motherless was the thing that caused the gospel to go forth in our city? So we're going to fast forward many more centuries now to the late 1800s. 19th century, Victorian England probably brings to mind a lot of images of wealth and prosperity and probably pride and prejudice. I don't know if that's when that happened, but that's what I think about. Mr. Darcy. Um, so we're in, we're in Victorian England. Um, and everything is, the, the, the British Empire is expanding, but in one of London's neighborhoods, it's called the East End, uh, there's a literal hell on earth going on. This, it's a, it was an urban ghetto. Uh, it was known for where the filthy and abominable, peop- and abominable people from all parts of the country seemed to congregate. About two million, in fact, two million filthy, abominable people were living in, this, in London's East End at the time. Those outside the East End looked in on that neighborhood with a mix of fear and indifference, fear that 
Maybe that poverty might just turn into violence and spread out into the streets. Some indifference, knowing that they were safely sheltered away from the problems going on inside the East End. About uh, in that small, in one small district within that uh, East End, there, uh, over 40% of the people were well below the poverty line. 63 brothels existed in one small neighborhood of that big East End. 63 brothels. In all of London during this time, it's estimated that there were 80,000 prostitutes. 80,000 prostitutes. Just a hair smaller than our town of prostitutes in London. Because of poor sanitation, like uh, open sewers and bad ventilation, more people were dying than from all the wars that England had engaged in in their their, uh, history. Working conditions were terrible. In order to pacify or deal with their, uh, the pain, people would use opium regularly, a drug. They would even give it to their babies in order to calm them down. People were literally wasting away at the heart of the British Empire. And it's in this pervasive darkness, this really dismal situation, that God began to shine through some uh, revolutionaries who said things like, Let us begin with a bold avowal to our flag. For we are not the children of darkness. Remember, they're right in the middle of this, this hell on earth, London's east end. We're not children of darkness, but of light. Those who do not feel the urgent need of radical changes in themselves and in mankind, or those who cannot reconcile themselves to the desperate measures required by so desperate a case, have nothing in common with us. The world is lost, and Jesus has come to save it. And it must be saved at any cost, and whatever that may require, because whoever is not saved will be damned forever. The Salvation Army, as it came to be known, lived with a sense of urgency that, they, uh, that God was starting a work in that dark city. It started right there in the darkest of darkest of places. And God used that dark ghetto in Britain uh, to, to move all throughout the earth. And the, the statistics are staggering as, as to the growth of the Salvation Army. It just took nine months in New Zealand, that when they finally got to New Zealand, nine months, 5,000 people were converted in nine months. Um, in Wales, 20,000 people were converted in two years. The message of God's saving grace, it was spreading like wildfire in the middle of a really dark time. And you could even see the effects upon society. In, in Britain, in a 10-year span, as the Salvation Army was moving about Britain, it just in, uh, in the British, uh, I don't know, was that the island? The main island there? Um, the, in ten, a 10-year period, alcohol sales dropped 47 million pounds over that 10-year period. 47 million pounds dropped in uh, annual alcohol sales. And by 1901, there were 30,000 converted drunks working for the Salvation Army. Not just, not just affected by the Salvation Army, they were working for them now. 30,000 converted drunks. The effects upon society were staggering. And um, William and Catherine Booth were at the forefront of this, this movement. And they always reminded them, their people within their ranks of the, the world war they were facing against sin. They, they saw firsthand what sin was doing to the world. And they believed that when the hearts of people were changed, the face of the earth would be changed. If the, if the hearts of people are changed, the face of the earth would be changed. They understood what Paul said to the Philippian church, to stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. 
And they are convinced about what Paul said in 2 Corinthians, that though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish strongholds, arguments, and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And because the booths were so singularly focused about bringing light into darkness, they often used unconventional methods at the time, open-air preaching. They would uh, have meetings in tents when churches wouldn't host them. Uh, They would even change songs to the popular pub tunes because William Booth said, you know, why should the devil have all the good tunes? So we'll turn them into worship songs. Um, And as I read these stories of the Salvation Army, I'm just relaying just a glimpse of it. it. It seemed unreal to me. I couldn't fathom it. It just, it seemed fake. It seemed like made up stories. Uh, And this didn't happen that long ago, 1880s, you know, late 1800s. And many of us in here probably owe our Christian heritage somehow to the Salvation Army. I know Katie, my wife's great-grandma, was saved at a Salvation Army meeting. A heritage, something changed in my wife's family because of what the Salvation Army was doing. My wife knows the Lord now because her great-grandma did and her grandma and her mom and passed it down to them. And I'm sure some of you know people who are touched by them. So what are the darkest places in our city that we're looking upon with a mix of indifference and fear? There's dark places in our city. And what if God could use, what if God could use us to shine brightest where it's darkest? Are we moving in with bold confidence, church, into the darkness, knowing that God can outshine any scheme of the devil? Are we moving forward or are we retreating and leaving God's mission to be handled by professional ministers and nonprofit organizations and government and agencies? Are we, are we advancing or are we retreating? That, that's the question I was stuck with as I was reading about the Salvation Army. I'm thankful that our, our new building that we're moving to, it sits right across the street from the Salvation Army thrift store. And I, I pray that serves as a reminder to us uh, of, of what, um, what God could do with people that just are convinced that, that light shines brightest in the darkness. I, I confess, I don't feel very equipped to teach on mission. I, um, I guess that's why I wanted to be stirred by some stories today. I wanted to get in touch with our, our, our heritage of mission as people. My life lately has been mostly about paying bills, about surviving the work week, uh, complaining about how small my house is. That's pretty much sums up most of my weeks lately. I have not loved my neighbors as myself. I've, uh, it pains me to think about missed opportunities that have gone past me uh, these past months. But God, God has been working slowly on me, and there's been just a flicker in my heart, that something could be different. That we, I, I just, what, I'm just, I, that I'm not here on earth just to pay the bills and complain about how small my house is and survive the work week. And it was just a flicker. And a, f- a couple of months ago, God started putting on my heart to do some kind of outreach during spring break. I work at a school, so I have a week off right before Easter. Um, and He started putting that on my heart, and it kind of came out of nowhere. And um, honestly. I, um, 
I wasn't sure what. Mexico came to mind. I was like, oh, yeah, Mexico mission trips over spring break. Um, now, let me stop there. I, I've been very judgmental about Mexico mission trips and spring break. It just is, I've just thought it's so, so common. You know, everybody does it. Big deal. I'm going to do something different and cool and something that nobody's ever done. And, and then our, our friends, um, John and Rochelle Brogan, who go here, they're in the nursery today watching our kids. Um, they invited us. They go to Mexico every year, sometimes twice a year. They invite us to come with them over spring break. So it's kind of weird. Like, okay, God, maybe you're you know, I was thinking about this. Maybe you're wanting me to go, but I can't afford it. We can't afford it right now. We can't just afford a, an expense like that. Uh, and then John Rochelle told us, oh, it's paid for, by the way. So there goes that excuse. So I'm looking for other excuses now. Um, I was worried about taking uh, my pregnant wife and our one-year-old baby to Mexico. That was a good excuse, a noble excuse. Um, the Brogans were also taking their one-year-old. Um, so... Didn't, I, I didn't feel like I could just go to them and say, you know, it's just not safe to take kids there as they're packing up and getting ready to take their one-year-old. So that excuse was gone. Then money, as we were getting really close to going to Mexico, money started getting tight because you have to, we had to buy some extra things to go down there and some supplies, and, and money was getting tight. So I was like, oh, great, this excuse is back. I have it. And um, then randomly God used somebody, uh, some dear friends, to give us just $200 out of nowhere. I said, hey, you're on our heart. Here's 200 bucks. Like, oh, well, there goes that excuse. God, it was very clear God wanted us to go. And I was not sure why, because I had judged Mexico mission trips in, on spring break for many years. Um, so we're driving there down on the way. I'm, I'm having a hard time just being present. I'm thinking about work, and I'm thinking about, you know, why I shouldn't be going down here on spring break. I need some time off. I need to sleep in. I deserve a break, God. And John, we're driving down to Mexico, and we were into Mexico, and he just kind of looks over at me and said, isn't it cool that somebody slept outside last night, and on Thursday, they're going to have a roof over their head? And I was just like, so, I just landed on me, so, like, God. I just was like, Lord, here are my excuses. I'm worried about danger. I'm worried about money. And you're going to use me to put a roof over somebody's head who literally slept outside the night before. So in Mexico, then, we got to, our group did a bunch of different things. The team I was on built a house, a 16-foot by 20-foot house, um, two bedrooms, a little living room, a little loft. And when we presented it to this family of nine who's going to live in a 16 by 20-foot house, that's, what, a little less than 400 square feet? They, they would have thought it was a mansion. Uh, it just, the looks on their faces... They were so blessed. They were praising God. They had saved up the money to buy the land for this, this house. All the while, while living under a tarp, saved up enough money to buy the land. And then the church we partnered with built them the house. And my small house that I'd been complaining about weeks and months leading up to this seemed very big all of a sudden. And my carpet on my floor, knowing that they had uh, you know, a cement slab, basically, and how thankful they were to God. So my judgments about typical outreach was just torn to shreds as I witnessed God doing a real work in Mexico on spring break. And I wonder, what might you be excusing yourself from? What excuses are coming up for you? For me, it was money and, you know, trying to be a good parent by keeping my child out of harm's way. God, God had to remind me, though, that the safest place for my family is in the middle of his will. The safest place is right in the center of his will. 
Because danger can find me in any neighborhood, in any city. The safest place for us is in the center of his will. And if he was calling us to go to Mexico, he was going to keep us safe in Mexico. What barriers might be coming up in front of you that are bigger than our big God? What, what things are in front of you? Maybe your fatigue, maybe it's finances. What, what barriers are popping up for you that are bigger than our, our big God? Are you having low thoughts when God might be wanting to stir possibility in your heart of what a life could look like on mission? I want to uh, watch a quick video clip um, from a guy named uh, Francis Chan and that pertains to this. Um, I think we need the lights off. Um, Steve, can you push button number three? Look at that. We don't play oh, very well. Steve. What am I to look forward to? It's going, man, what am I to look forward to at the end? I'm going to bring an illustration that this is like the first illustration I did. It was 20 years ago, but I can't think of a better way to, to explain it. Um, I actually didn't use a rope back then. I used a, remember, a, remember computer paper when uh, it was all stuck together? And then had the holes on the side that you had to peel off. Remember that? I remember getting a, a roll. And some of you guys have no idea what I'm talking about, which is crazy to me. But because uh, that was the best, you know. And um, and it never worked right because of the rolling things. But uh, but I, I had I remember being a youth pastor and I put uh, that computer paper all the way around the room. And uh, but I'm going to use a rope now because I can't find that computer paper. Um, imagine this rope. Okay, pretend this rope just goes on forever, okay? Just imagination. Pretend it goes around the world a few times. It doesn't. It ends at the rock. But uh, let's just imagine this thing goes on forever. Now imagine that this rope is a timeline of your existence. You just exist forever. You see this red part? This would represent your time on earth. You've got a few short years here on earth and then you've got all of eternity somewhere else. This is, this is your existence. And what blows me away is some of you, all you think about is this red part. It's all you think about. You're consumed with this. You go, oh man, I can't wait till here. You know, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to save, save, save so I can really enjoy this part right here. And you're consumed with that. And you're thinking, oh man, am I going to get to travel? Am I going to eat well? Am I going to do this during this part? And I'm like, are you kidding me? What about this? What about this? What about, th- what about all this stuff? It's, just, it's crazy to me because the Bible teaches that what I do during this little red part determines how I'm going to exist for millions and millions and millions of years forever. And, and so why would I spend this little red part trying to make myself as comfortable as possible, enjoying myself as much as I can? Paul says, look, I'm going to live my life for this mission. I'm going to spend my life, invest my life for this moment when I cross that finish line. See, I'm going to forget about all this stuff I could enjoy, and I'm not going to look around. I'm going to be like a runner just looking at that moment when I face God because when I face Him, then I don't get this chance over again. We get one chance at this life on earth, and it can end at any second for any of us. We've got one chance at this, and then comes eternity. And I'm not going to be fooled. I'm not going to spend my life down here. See, people look at some of my decisions and go, oh, you're so stupid because that's going to really affect this. 
I go, no, you're stupid, because it's going to affect all of this. Man, I, I, I'm serious. I, I look... I look at the way people live and I go, wow, that is so crazy. You are so crazy. You're going you're gonna to do that right now, just to enjoy right now. Not even knowing if you have tomorrow and you think that's smart and that I'm dumb. It doesn't make any sense. Paul goes, I'm not going to look around at all this stuff. And it's tempting. It's tempting to all of us. That's what I'm saying down here. It's crazy because everyone lives that way. Everyone lives for the red part. No one's thinking about the millions of years afterwards. It's, it's just this crazy deception that we can't get out of our minds. And Paul goes, I'm not doing that. He goes, I keep my eyes on that. I keep my eyes on that finish line. And I'm going to forget what's behind me. I'm not looking around. I'm just going to, I'm straining. He goes, I'm straining forward. I'm like stretching forward for that mark. I'm going to pass this thing. I'm going to live this out, and I'm going to face him. I'm going to come before the judges, and he's going to hand me that trophy. He goes, I'm going to get it, and I haven't gotten there yet. He goes, but you better believe I'm using every muscle, exerting every bit about me, because I'm going to pass that line well. The the stories that I I read about in Acts, and the, the women in Egypt, and the booths in England... The common thing for all these people is they understood eternity. They, they understood eternity and the reality of that little red part that we have on earth. They understood the urgency of the time. And I have not been understanding that. It's, it's my confession before God that I have not been understanding eternity. Um, I wanted to read something out of Second Corinthians as we close. Second uh, Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting uh, to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God is, ma- God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God, for those of us that have put our hope and trust in Jesus, God has made us the righteousness of God. And he's entrusted us. It says he's entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation. There is a world outside those doors that is dying for reconciliation, whether they realize it or not. They need to be reconciled to their heavenly father and reconciled to each other. And God has entrusted us, this small group here in a room, with the ministry of reconciliation. And we're going to be moving from here very soon in a matter of weeks to our new building. And we are, God has opened a door for us in a neighborhood that is hurting, and there, I'm sure, are very dark things going on in that neighborhood. And he's opened a door for us to be there, right on a highway that conveniently and quickly moves people through the darkness so that they don't have to think about it, right on Highway 63. And are we going to pause long enough? Are we going to stop long enough to open our eyes to see what God is doing in our world? And will we ask him for the courage that it takes to join him in mission? Because it's frightening, 
and we cannot do it on our own. When Jesus, uh, in Matthew, uh, the, Matthew's recording of Jesus going up into heaven, the last thing he says to them, Behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. I know this is a tall order, but I am with you to the end of the age. And if he is with us, then who can be against us? Greater is he that is in us than he is who, in, who is in the world. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? Because if so, we must believe that he's gathering us here for a purpose. He's gathering us so that we might scatter throughout the week. And don't just wait and look for us to plan nice outreaches for us to do as a church. We'll do that, of course. But it's, you guys are entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. Your neighborhoods, your workplaces, he's entrusted you with the ministry of reconciliation. And it's such, yes, it is a tall order. But if we understand that glimpse that we just have a moment here on earth and then millions of years for the, ahead of us, if we understand that, we, we will take heart and believe. So let's pray. Lord, thank you that comfort is coming. Lord, thank you that that heaven awaits us where every tear will be wiped away. All these pains and worries of this world will, will, will just melt away, Lord, in your presence. I thank you that we have a home awaiting us. So, Lord, here we are. Send us. Here we are. Scatter us, Lord. I pray, Lord, just as Travis prayed earlier, that you'd protect the relationships here from the schemes of the evil one, that you'd keep us closely linked together, that we might go forward, Lord, into this world, knowing that we're going with our friends, and more importantly, we're going with you, Jesus. Thank you that you're with us to the end of the age. Lord, give us a a heavenly perspective, I pray. Lord, give us uh, this perspective of eternity. And for our friends here, Lord, that that have not yet been reconciled to you, I pray for reconciliation to take place, Lord, that they would trust you, Jesus, that they would trust you for this short time they have on earth. Father, thank you for the mission. Thanks for trusting us with your task of being your witnesses to the ends of the earth. It's such a privilege, Lord. This This is not a heavy message. This is an exciting thing that you've given us, Lord, to do. Because you're with us. You're with us, Lord. So I pray you'd fan into flame all the gifts that are here, Lord, and present. Lord, I, I pray over each of these households, Lord, that uh, they would be shining lights for you in their neighborhoods, Lord. Pray for the, the places of work where we'll be heading to tomorrow. Lord, let us shine as your witnesses at work. We love you, Jesus. We love your mission. We pray, God, that we could uh, stay close to you as we go forth. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Happy Mother's Day. Have fun with your moms. And I love you.
Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantvicelia.com. Until next time. Divide